You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. Amen. Well, good evening. Grateful to be able to preach tonight uh, while Pastor is out. Uh, Please do continue to keep him in prayer. Um, I know that he's, I don't even know how many times he's probably gone down to Oklahoma at this point since he's been here, but I certainly don't take for granted the safety that comes with doing long trips. Brother Samuel and I have taken enough trips to Tennessee to know that there are plenty of things that could go wrong on trips that last longer than two hours. So just be sure to keep him and his family in their prayers as they head back. Um, I've had plenty of people ask me, am I nervous to preach? And the answer is always Um, especially when you're being recorded and everything that you say is going to exist forever somewhere on the internet. And a a trick that they tell you in Bible college to overcome some of those nervous tendencies is to go back and watch the recording of yourself and notice the things that you do that that might be contributing to that. But the problem is I don't want to do that because every time I turn my head this way or this way, I have to accept the fact that my head is like alien-sized huge. And that just makes me really self-conscious and I, I, I can't really get over it. So, uh, anyways, grateful for the opportunity to preach tonight. Uh, if you all would take your Bibles, uh, let's t- uh, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, uh, if you'd stand for the reading of God's Word. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I was originally going to have us start in one place, but I'm actually going to uh, actually just push us down to verse number nine, 19. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse number 19, uh, when you're all there. We'll begin reading together. It says, For though I be free from all men, yet have I made myself servant unto all, that I might gain the more. And unto the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might gain the Jews. To them that are under the law, as under the law, that I might gain them that are under the law. To them that are without law, as without law, being not without law to God, but under the law to Christ, that I might gain them that are without law. To the weak became I as weak, that I might gain the weak. I am made all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. And this I do for the gospel's sake, that I might be partaker thereof with you. Thank you. You may be seated. So, I have something. How many of you in here own one of these? I imagine absolutely everyone except for kids that don't own a house would raise their hands. Let's all say it together. This is a one, two, three key. key. Very good, very good. I've always wanted to try that from the pulpit. <laughs> so this, this here ordinary silver key is the key to my apartment that I now live in up here. Um, I will use this key whenever I, I leave here today. Um, being tired and all the nervousness is finally over, I will unlock my door, walk in, enjoy the warm embrace of my bed until tomorrow morning. Um, Uh, The unique thing about this key, as you might expect, is that this key solely belongs to me. There's not a single person here in this room that has a key quite like this. I would be concerned. Um, It gives gives me a sense of security that this is a key unique to me. Now, this is a key to my parents' house down in Stillwater, Oklahoma. I still have this key because I'm still allowed to go home, I think. But... (laughs) I use this much in the same way that I would use the key to my apartment. I would go to the front door, I would insert it into the lock, turn it, and enjoy mom's home cooking once more. 
Um, but, but this may sound elementary, but the key to my apartment is not going to open the door to my parents' house. Adversely speak, conversely, similarly, whatever word you want to use there, this key right here, my house key, my parents' house key is not going to open the key to my apartment. So in the event that I am going to my apartment and I do not have this key, no matter how much I wish for this key to fit in there, it will not unlock the door and I will be sleeping outside or here. <laughs> if I make the long drive down to Stillwater, Oklahoma to go and visit my parents and spend some time with them, if I forget this key, and I bring this key, until mom and dad come home, I will likewise be sleeping outside until someone is there to let me in. Because at, at the end of the day, unless the key matches the lock, you're not going to get inside. And that, that's because of how locks are constructed. I actually have a, a diagram up here to show how locks work. Most, most typical locks you find today, such as these up here, are particularly on houses and buildings, are, are what are referred to as pin tumbler locks. And the design's very simple. And the following is a description given by the, the general Wikipedia article describing the mechanism. It says, the pin tumbler is commonly used in cylinder locks. In this type of lock, an outer casing has a cylindrical hole in which the plug is housed. To open the lock, the plug must rotate. The plug has a straight-shaped slot known as the keyway at one end to allow the key to enter the plug. The other end may have a, have a cam or a lever, uh, which activates a mechanism to retract a locking bolt. The keyway often has protruding ledges that serve to prevent the key pins from falling into the plug and to make the lock more resistant to picking. A series of holes, typically five or six of them, are drilled vertically into the plug. You can see up there those, those five little pins, both the, the blue and the red ones, are, are going to be your key pins. They're called key pins. Um, these holes contain key pins of various lengths, which are rounded at the, at the ends within the cylinder to permit the key to slide over them easily. Above each key is a corresponding set of driver pins, which are spring-loaded. So, so the red ones would be considered the key pins, and the blue ones the driver pins, which have the strings attached to them. The outer casing has several vertical shafts which hold the spring-loaded pins. When the plug and outer casing are assembled, the pins are pushed down into the plug by the springs. Now the point where the plug and cylinder meet is called the shear point. With a key properly cut and inserted into the groove on the end of the plugs, the pins will rise, causing them to align exactly at the shear point. You can see up here in the, in the diagram that when that key is entered in, all of, the, all of the key pins are of differing lengths and correspond with the, the dips in the key. And, and with the key being inserted in there correctly, it lines up where the, where the driving pins and the key pins separate at what they call the shear point that lets you turn the lock and unlock the mechanism and thus open the door and, and enjoy the warmth of your own bed. So, so that's, this is all to say thank you that I, the, the illustration is, is good. It's, without the right key, a lock is not going to open. So you, you can't simply just force, as, 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 you, as you saw up there, the pins are differing lengths. You can't just force, all, force them all up as high as they possibly can go and then hope that that opens at the same. It, it doesn't work that way. Uh, the, the lock isn't going to turn unless every individual pin has been raised to the shear point, to its proper position, and only in that instance when all of the pins are properly aligned is when you are going to have access to whatever is behind the lock. Now, now, I thought of the illustration to think about it this way. People are kind of like locks too, aren't they? 
Every, every single lock is different. It has a unique key that goes within it in order to gain access to whatever is beyond the lock. But people, people are like locks. Each and every one of us have our key pins. They're those individual points that we have to reach in order for something to gain access to our, to our innermost being, so to speak. And I, I don't want to sound like I'm, I'm over-spiritualizing something. But, but in, in, in that way, I think, I think you could agree. People are like locks. Each and every one of us are different. Trying to reach people with the gospel and bringing someone to accept Jesus Christ as, as into their heart is, is a process that follows quite similarly to putting a key inside of a lock. And, and we know that. And, and Paul knew that, and the, the Corinthians needed to know that. And so, so tonight we're actually going to look at Paul's mindset concerning how, how he ministered to people with the gospel. And, and before we get to where we started reading tonight, I do want to provide a little bit of background that this where we started is a point that Paul's kind of built up to. See, he's, he's right now he's writing to the church at Corinth. He started this church back on his second missionary journey. And um, this church is located in a place that would be equivalent to, I don't know, modern-day Philly, maybe. Not, not the best place to be. You, you wouldn't really want to be stuck there. It's, 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 it was not a great place to live at the time. I mean, it was successful, but very, very worldly very sensual, very, very licentious. Um, and, and the church was having, having a tough time to keeping, keeping themselves straight. Paul has, Paul has to write to them here to correct some issues that are going on. Um, they're, they're divided on, their, on who's their spiritual authority. Some were saying, I'm of Paul. Others were saying, I'm of Apollos. Others were saying, I'm of Cephas or, or Peter. Um, and, and they were divided amongst themselves and they were, they were there was fornication in the church that was open and it wasn't being dealt with. They were taking each other to, to public courts. They, they were taking their personal problems before unsaved people to solve them. And, and all this, what this was doing, not only was it causing disunity in the church, but it was affecting their testimony in the community. It was affecting what the people of Corinth thought of the believers that were there. And so Paul has to, Paul has to take some corrective measures here in order, to, in order to make sure that their testimony remains intact so they can continue to minister to people. Now, in chapter 8, just previous to this chapter, what, what Paul addresses there is that, is that the believers are exercising their Christian liberties in a, in a selfish way. So, um, the, the, at, at Corinth, there was a, it was a place that was steeped into idolatry, and, and they would often sacrifice meat to idols. And, and, what, and, and in their Christian liberty, Paul said, hey, look, it's okay that your, your knowledge, you know that there's only one God. So, so when meat has been sacrificed to an idol, you know that an idol represents a God which does not exist, and so there's only one God. Idols don't eat meat because they're not real, so that meat's okay. And they, and they would actually take that meat that was offered to an idol, and they'd sell it usually for cheaper than you would buy regular meat, and hey, it was a pretty good deal. And you could eat that without violating your conscience. Some could. However, there were people in their community that were still steeped in idolatry. There were people in their community where that sacrifice to the idol still meant something. There were also people within their church that had just been saved out of that and it still meant something. And so Paul was, Paul was also addressing them for, for saying, they were justifying themselves for saying, well, us eating this is okay. And Paul's saying, well, that may be true. But he says in verse number 13 of chapter 8, Wherefore, if meat make my brother to offend, I will eat no flesh while the world standeth, lest I make my brother to offend. See, Paul's concern, his mindset was that if I'm going to do something in my liberty that causes someone else to stumble and ultimately is going to affect their relationship with Jesus Christ, then my default 
should be that I, I am the one that defers. As the more mature believer, as the stronger believer, I should be the one that defers rather than justify my position. He, he try, he's trying to teach them here that the gospel demands self-denial and, and not self-assertion. And, and in the beginning of chapter 9, he actually gives a more personal illustration saying, say, saying, you know, while you may be struggling with this, in fact, I, as an administrator of the gospel, the gospel has been entrusted to me, and in fact, I have the right to, to essentially gain livelihood from it. See, as a, as a preacher, uh, he, he spent his time ministering to people. He traveled around. He was supported by the churches. And so he said, it is within my right to, to take, essentially take payment for what I'm doing for you. However, I don't for your sake, because I know that you were... He, he honestly has to tell them, I know that you are not strong enough spiritually to be able to see that as a necessity to bless the ministry of the gospel. You'll see that as occasion against me for using the gospel for my gain. And so, lest I cause you to stumble for making me think I'm abusing my power in the gospel, I'm actually putting us, I'm denying myself and my, my liberties and my rights to, to receive a livelihood from what I'm just trying to do here for your sakes. And that brings, us, that brings us to verse number 19. He says, For though I be free from all men, yet have I made myself servant unto all, that I might gain the more. So even though Paul was free from all men, free, he was free from their expectations and a lack of spiritual, spiritual maturity, we see that Paul's able to effectively minister to the lost by, by denying himself and submitting himself to whatever best served those to whom he was ministering to with the gospel. And as a result, Paul, Paul submitted himself, we find, in verse number 22, to become all things to all men. He understood that each and every person he encountered was, was like a locked door in the need of the right key. He put himself not only in a position of service, but in a position of a, of a personal relationship. See, in verse number 20, to the Jews... He became as a Jew, and that, I'm sure that came rather easily to him. He himself was a Jew, but, but he, understood, he understood their key pins, right? He understood that reaching the Jews was not the same as reaching the Gentiles, which is what he spent a vast majority of his time doing. He looked at the Jews and said, okay, in order to reach the Jews with the gospel, the Jews have a key pin. Then that was that they were under the law, the law given to them by Moses, which was given to Moses by God himself. He, he, couldn't, he couldn't just force that pin into position. He couldn't, he couldn't tell them that, that the law didn't matter. He, could, he couldn't tell them that, that, they, that, he, that, that their righteousness came from, from following, following procedures and from rituals. He, he couldn't just jump to that point. right? He, he, had, to, he had to work the key pins. He had to find the sheer point in their understanding of the law and the gospel, where the two met. And Jesus Christ himself said he didn't come to do away with the law, but to fulfill it. And, and we even find accounts of Paul, Paul ministering to people, you know, through, through means of the law or by means of the prophets and saying, you know, Christ fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah or, or those of whom others spoke. He spent time with each and every one of these Jewish people individually to help them understand that Christ was, the, was their Messiah from the Old Testament, and that's how he and, and how he fulfilled the word of prophecies. And in verse number twenty-one, Paul says that he to those without the law, or, or being the, the Gentiles in this case, he he became as without law. Not in that he he even clarifies himself. Not that he operated as though he knew no law, 
but that the law of the Jews did not apply to Gentiles. And another, another common issue of this day was that Jewish believers were trying to tell Gentiles that, yes, Christ has saved you from your sins, so you still need to obey the law and all the things contained in the law. And so, so and Abishua mentioned some of these in his message before he left. You know, they had, they had all sorts of stuff they had to do. He, they, they wanted to convince them that they had to wash themselves after certain instances, whether they were eating or writing or uh, they had to f- adhere to a certain diet. They had to follow the Sabbath. They had to obey feast days. They had to, they had to adhere to circumcisions. And, and, and Paul, Paul understood that the Gentiles didn't have a need to perform these uh, in order to come to Christ. So, so Paul taught them that they were under the law to Christ. He, he didn't bother with trying to catch them up on all the rules and rituals of the law because that didn't concern them. Everyone that Paul met had an individual need. They had something that would present a challenge to winning them with the gospel, and, and he took it upon himself to do that. To the weak, he became as, as weak. And, and there would be many in, in, that situ- in, in those days who would be considered the weak. He's not necessarily talking the physical. I mean, there, there were slaves in that day. They were people that were bound to a master, and their sense of worth was tied to another. And so he himself put himself out of position and ministered to them by saying, you know, I too am bound to a master, and I can find great value in being someone who is bound to a master. And, and he, he found all sorts of methods to be all things to all men. And so, really to jump real quick into an application tonight, we ourselves are obligated to become all things to all men. Each person that we come across has a need for the gospel, but the gospel isn't going to be able to enter a heart that hasn't been unlocked. See, I think we oftentimes will, will think, well, isn't, isn't the gospel itself the key? If that were the case, I would think that we would see a lot more, a lot more fruit from just witnessing to people. Um, and I, I don't, I don't want to be misunderstood here, but, but was the gospel not given for men to share? Did not, did not Jesus Christ entrust the gospel to his disciples? Say, go ye therefore and teach all men? I think, it would be, I think it would be more accurate to say that rather than the gospel being the key, that Christ intended for us to be the key. In order to open the hearts of people who have a need of the gospel, so that way they open the door to their heart and let him in. There's, there's a term tonight that you may have heard of, and it's called pre-evangelism. I know it's maybe not popular, or it might be a more theological term that, that gets thrown around in Bible college, but pre-evangelism. It's a term that came into use, and, and what that describes is the process by which someone comes to be ready to receive the gospel. And there, there could be things that, that prevent the door to the heart from opening. You know, Jesus Christ used the illustration of, of the, the sower and the seed and how he threw the seed of the gospel on different types of ground. You know, sometimes the ground needs to be worked before a seed's going to take. And, and we have a responsibility to work that ground. The key to opening someone's heart to the gospel lies in, in our investment. Each and every person that we meet has, has key pins in their lock that need to be addressed on an individual needs basis. And the gospel, what the gospel should do is motivate us to deny ourselves and submit to whatever best serves those to whom we are ministering so that we can reach them with the gospel. And the gospel reaches all kinds of people because someone took the time to address the needs of each one. And, and I think we all, we all could probably get up here and give our testimony tonight and we would, we would understand very quickly that not everyone is saved under the same circumstances. I know some you'll meet, like, like Brother Samuel and I, who, who grew up in church. You know, how we came to Christ was, was by, from someone having to deal with our key pin of inherited self-righteousness. 
I think, I think some of you in here could probably understand, understand what I mean by that. As in, I go to the right church. I hear good preaching. I know it's all right. You know, I do all the right things. I look good on the outside. Everything's going great. I don't do bad things. And no matter what, I know God loves me. That's a key pin. That's a key pin that gets in the way from people understanding the truth of the gospel. And for me, I know for me, it took my parents a very long time to have to get past that key pin and help me understand, no, Jacob, you stand before God by yourself. Mom and dad's not there to answer for the sins that you committed against God, regardless of how good you think you are. That's a key pin, that's a key pin that you have to work past before the gospel can be received. You know, there's, there's some that, that are in here tonight that, that have been in some pretty, some, some pretty rough situations. God brought them out of, of perhaps prison or of drugs or addiction. And, and the key pins that were in their way were not necessarily the inherited self-righteousness, but perhaps it was self-loathing. You know, you come across these people all the time. People that are struggling with a, with a, with a diminished sense of self-worth. And before you, before you can even convince them that they have a need for salvation, you just have to convince them that they matter. You know, that's on us to do. You know, some are never going to have once heard the gospel, or at least they're only going to know of Christianity from the perspective of a mainstream narrative and, and evolution or, or some sort of secular truth is going to, some sort of secular ideology is going to be their, their pillar of truth. And, and you're not going to be able to tell them right across the bat that, hey, did you know that God sent his only son to this earth to die for your sins? Because you've got to get past the key pin of who's God. Why does God matter to me? Does God care about me? Does God care about you? There, there's questions that people have that, that are going to provide some key pins to their lock that you can't just force them out of the way and hope that the, hope that the door opens. You know, sometimes it's going to take a little patience in order, in order to invest in these people in order to get the gospel to them. Others are going to come from, from broken homes or they'll have been hurt by people that they trusted in the past and, and they have a key pin that keeps their lock shut tight. Because it tells them God doesn't love you. If he loved you, why would this have happened to me? That's a key pin you have to get past. Here may be a less serious one, but this has been something that was kind of on my brain all day as I was thinking about it. It's a quite literal key pin, but a language barrier. You know, we live in, we live in one of the most informed ages of, of mankind. The most informed. We are in the information age. That's what it's called. We have access to all sorts of information, and yet one of the biggest barriers to the gospel to this day is still the language barrier. The, their understanding of the gospel isn't impeded by some internal struggle or from some, some sense of self-worth or, or, or diminishing their sense of self-righteousness. It's simply from the fact that they can't understand us. Um, yeah, and we spend, we spend a lot of our time as Americans pursuing all sorts of things. We have, we have plenty of gifted musicians, grateful for it. I'm, I'm grateful for the music program at Eastside Baptist Church. There's, there's also, the, there's people that pursue academic achievement. There's people that pursue intellect and, and, and being able to, to be highly researched and have access to all sorts of, of knowledge. There, or, or there's athleticism. There's people who want to accomplish great things or, or set records or do whatever. Those are all well and good. But, but we also waste a lot of our time, too. I was looking at some data, and, and the, the number that I think would be most accurate concerning at least cellular time, specifically time spent on our phones, the average American spends roughly four to five hours a day looking at our phone screen alone. 
we're, we're, we're browsing content, we're, we're liking posts, and we're scanning articles, and, and informing ourselves about the greatest fad. And, and I, I don't mean for it to sound like I'm going off on a tangent, but why don't we learn a language? I mean, have you ever considered that? I mean, there, there are so many people in our community, they speak Spanish, they speak Nepali, they speak Bhutanese, Sudanese, they're from Liberia, from Nigeria. You know, you have all sorts of these people that are here within our community, and the one thing that keeps them from being able to hear the gospel is not that their hearts are hardened, or not that they're receptive, it's just that they have absolutely no one who can tell them in their own language. And I think sometimes we, 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 we restrict that to saying, well, that's for the missionaries to do. That's for them to learn that language and go over there to do that. And we wait for, for some spiritual tap on the shoulder from God to say, hey, hey, you're the special one that gets to do it. I, I don't necessarily know that that's the case. I, th I think very, very many of us have the, have the talent to and the ability to probably learn a new language and, and really make some serious investments and impacts in the city of Sioux Falls. To be all things to all men, we need to be willing to become whatever it takes to reach people with the gospel. And in conclusion, I, I, I don't know how the Lord's going to lead you to respond tonight. I, I don't. I, I have presented some various thoughts. And maybe, maybe tonight you're frustrated that, that witnessing doesn't seem to get you anywhere. Every person... You try to talk about the Lord with just doesn't, doesn't seem to ever want to listen to what you have to say. And, and while it may be true that, that it's everyone's choice on, on whether or not they, they want to receive the gospel, we also need to be careful not, not to treat the gospel like it's a Band-Aid. Um, if, if, if the gospel was, was as easy as kind of a, one of those peel-and-stick solutions, I think we'd have packed out this building already and needed a new one. Um, People sometimes need, need more than, and I don't, I don't mean to, to put this in a bad light, but they need more than, than a stranger to sell them a product. Not that that's what we try to do, but that we have to think about their perspective. Their perspective is sometimes, sometimes when we come up to them and we're challenging their worldview directly, they need something a little bit more than, than, than confronting their worldview in, in a very short period of time. We need relationships. We have to deal with the key pins one by one until the door to their heart is open to Christ, whom they will have seen through you and in the investments that you make in them. Maybe you're discouraged that it doesn't seem like the one you're praying for will ever come to know Christ as Savior. And, and in those moments of discouragement, remember that, that God will use those who submit, whatever, submit themselves to whatever best serves those to whom they're ministering. Whoever becomes all things to all men. You're simply allowing God to use you to move the key pins in the lock. And perhaps the Lord has convicted you to find new ways to reach out to others, either through a, through a more concentrated effort at outreach. You know, we, we do have a church-wide outreach program that is available every Saturday for people to come to. And, and you have plenty of opportunities to see the different kinds of key pins that we've talked about tonight. I mean, Brother Samuel and I were we're knocking on some doors in a trailer park and we, we met in a poly man. It's kind of a, it was, it's another instance of that language barrier. I mean, he was, he, it was, it was such a, such a distinct barrier between giving him the gospel. He took the track and thought that we were asking him for money. It was, it was, it was quite, it was quite a shocking thing. I did not expect that to happen in Sioux Falls, South Dakota of the United States of America. Maybe we need to take more time to witness to our coworkers amidst a busy schedule, and you might think, well, it's too embarrassing to give them a gospel at work. Well, maybe that's not where you start. 
Maybe, maybe you start by, by strengthening that relationship. Maybe, maybe you start by, by inviting them out sometime outside of work. Take them out to coffee. Invest in them. Spend some time with them. Try to, get, try to identify what are the key pins here that are necessary to put, to put at the sheer point. We need to find the sheer point in the hearts of people to help them be receptive to the gospel. However the Lord deals with you tonight, let's all stand. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.